Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5. In 2012, a scandal rocked the campus of the elite Harvard University. At least 125 students were suspected of collaborating together in groups to come up with answers to the questions on a take-home final exam and to do so violated a no collaboration policy that was printed on the final exam itself. Many of the students were shocked that they had been implicated and some even threatened to sue the school. Uh, Apparently, many students seemed thoroughly confused about what constitutes plagiarism and cheating. And since then, Harvard University requires courses for incoming students explaining to them what is cheating and plagiarism. An insightful author from the New York Times wrote about the issue, and she said, are we meant to assume that students who are smart enough to get into Harvard don't know what cheating is? Will the school later offer a course on why it's a bad idea to pour gasoline on a flaming toaster oven? She noted this. She said, I taught university classes for many years, And in my experience, students don't decide to cheat because they don't know better. They cheat because they've imbibed the message from parents, from peers, from schools that looking successful is more important than being honest. They cheat because they have been taught, however unwittingly, that it is worth it. Now, as we continue our time in Daniel, we find that the reigning king of Babylon has done this very thing. A scandal rocks Babylon because the king believes that looking successful is more important than being honest. About 25 years have passed since the events of chapter four that we looked at last week and the opening of chapter five. And Daniel is not a teenager anymore. He was a teenager when he started in chapter one. He's now been in Babylon for over 60 years Daniel's now an old man. He's a seasoned official in the empire. And Belshazzar, the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, now sits on the throne. Now, this chapter will refer multiple times to Nebuchadnezzar being Belshazzar's father. It simply means that he was his predecessor. This is his grandson. And Nebuchadnezzar's family line is now in its third generation of reigning on the throne. But something tragic is about to take place that will end this line of kings and it will end the Babylonian Empire. The Persians have come into power. They're now taking over most of the world and just as the Babylonians had done before him, they have set their mind on ruling the entire world. So they have besieged the city of Babylon. And what is the noble king of Babylon doing while his city is under siege. Verse one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Brilliant military strategy. The the city is going down and the king is living it up. This is Nero fiddling while Rome burns. All of the eating, all of the feasting, all of the drinking wine, all of it while under active attack from his enemy. But you know what? At least he looks confident. At least he looks successful to his 1,000 lords. And if that's not bad enough, Belshazzar is about to do something far worse. 
he openly taunts the God of Israel. Verse two, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, we've seen these vessels before. We were introduced to them as the book of Daniel opens. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Well, now, all this time later, the, these vessels reappear. Nebuchadnezzar apparently never did anything with them. He simply conquered Jerusalem, brings them back, puts them in his pagan temple of his false gods, and there they sit. Now, this is where we got the idea that we've hit every week that Daniel's a battle of the gods. Daniel's not about uh, Jehoiakim versus Nebuchadnezzar or even God versus Nebuchadnezzar. It is this contrast of the one true God with the false gods of Babylon. And over and over and over again, God has prevailed. It's pretty easy to prevail when the false gods aren't even real, but we've seen it story after story. And though it took much, Nebuchadnezzar finally saw the light and he finally repented of his sin. That's chapter four, where he's converted. He places his trust in the one true God. Belshazzar, though, He's young, and he's foolish, and he takes this battle up a notch. And not only will he defile God's name by drinking from the cups from the temple, he uses them to toast his false gods. This is not gonna end well. So God sends Belshazzar a sign. It's not a dream like Nebuchadnezzar had had a couple of times. This one is front and center, physically and literally, right in front of his face. Verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. You know, the, the phrase, you saw the writing on the wall, this is where that phrase comes from, Daniel chapter five. Now I want you to imagine the scene. The king, his wives, his concubines, a thousand lords, they're all gathered together. It's a great party, a lot of feasting. The wine is flowing freely. And then Thing from the Adams family shows up hovering midair and starts writing on the wall. Strange event. In the original language here, it's in the Aramaic, indicates that the king was so scared by the sight the phrase that we have in our Bible is his limbs gave way. The phrase literally translates the knots of his loins were loosened. 
It's a phrase that could be a euphemism to let us know that the king was so scared he had to go put on a new pair of pants if you're picking up what I'm throwing down. But God sent this hand not to scare him but to send a message. And the king is scared and he's also clueless. He can't read it. It's a language none of them know. He has no idea what it means. So just as his grandfather had done before him, Belshazzar sends in for all of the wise men and the enchanters and the magicians that come in from all of the empire and maybe they can read it and they can interpret the writing. And just as had happened so many years before, none of them can help. But then a voice from the back of the room echoes over all of them. It's the queen. And the queen says, oh, king, there's a, there's a man in your empire that Nebuchadnezzar promoted into all of these positions. He's known for having gifts like this. You should call Daniel, and Daniel will help you. So the king does just that. Just like his grandfather before him, he calls in Daniel when no one else could help. And just as had happened so many years before, Daniel can once again help when no one else could. And when Daniel gives Belshazzar the interpretation of this writing on the wall, we, the readers, are presented with a very clear contrast. There's a contrast between Daniel and Belshazzar between Daniel's character as a man of God and Belshazzar's character as a corrupt, scandalous king. Again, the, the king is corrupt. He initiated this scandal. He's the one who called for the vessels to show off in front of his lords. He's defiling God's name. Daniel, however, Daniel refused to be corrupted. We've seen it over and over again. We'll continue to see it next week in chapter six in a lion's den. He faithfully follows the Lord while he swims in the sea of corruption that is Babylon. Belshazzar allows the faith of his grandfather to fade and to be corrupted. Daniel's faithful to the Lord no matter what. No matter the context, no matter the consequence, over 60 years now, he has been faithful in Babylon. So by looking at Daniel's words to the king here, we're seeing what he says. We're seeing Daniel's example. We find for us a means to avoid corruption, a way out of being described like Belshazzar who's corrupt and scandalous and sinful. We, we see a way to avoid all of that corruption. Here's how we do it. Number one, we recognize God's holiness. Now, Belshazzar's big problem through this whole text is the fact he did not see the God of Israel for who he is. He, do, he does not see God as the holy, righteous, pure, magnificent God that he really is. Rather than calling out to God in his time of need, which he could have done, he, he doesn't call out to God. I mean, his, his city's under siege, his life is in imminent danger. In fact, at the end of chapter five, Belshazzar is dead. We just get a glimpse of him. His life is over. And he's in this place, and instead of asking God for help, he's partying with his friends to show off. And on top of that, he defiles God's name by taking these vessels from the temple and toasting false gods with them. 
Rather than praising God for all the majesty and the, the glory and the greatness of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar had finally learned to do, he turns towards the idols of wood and bronze and stone and iron and gold and silver. The faith that Nebuchadnezzar had proclaimed 25 years prior is gone. It's been corrupted by Belshazzar's refusal to acknowledge God's holiness. In contrast, there's Daniel. Here Daniel stands who has spent his entire life recognizing the holiness of God. From the time he enters into Babylon as a teenager in chapter one, he's this young man, but even then, he's proving himself to be faithful. He's a person who understands the righteousness and the holiness of God. He remembered God's holiness when he refused to defile himself with the king's food in chapter one. He remembered God's holiness when he refuses to bow to the pagan idols of his day. He remembers God's holiness when he proclaims the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. He stands before the king and calls the king to repentance and to faith in God. Sadly, I think one of the, the primary reasons for corruption among God's people is we fail to recognize God's holiness. Yet if you just flip through the Bible, it becomes immediately clear that yes, God is loving, Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is wise. But his chief characteristic is his holiness, meaning he's set apart. He's different. He's other than us. He is uncorrupt, unlike his creation. Psalm 99, verse three. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This is who he is. Yet the biblical concept of holiness is not limited to God. It is applied to his children. His holiness is to lead us to holiness. Leviticus chapter 20, verse eight, God says, keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. First Peter 1 Peter 1:15. but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it's written, be holy, because I am holy. If we're gonna avoid the corruption that comes from Belshazzar's life, then we must keep God's holiness at the forefront of our mind, placing who he is and what he's done in front of us forever. Number two, remember the past. We recognize God's holiness, we remember the past. Now, if you were to read through the whole response that Daniel gives to the king, and I encourage you to do so, Daniel does not start his response by saying, all right, Belshazzar, here's the writing, here's what the words are, here's what they mean, have a great day, I'll see you later. He opens with a history lesson. He tells King Belshazzar all about King Nebuchadnezzar. Your grandfather did all of these things. Here's the things that he said, all the foolish statements, all the foolish actions, and here's what God did to your grandfather. God drove him away from his people stripped him of his mind and of his kingdom. Again, he recounts all the events of chapter four of his conversion. And then he tells 
Belshazzar, but here's the good news. Your grandfather was returned to power. He was brought back even to a, a more glorious kingdom when he finally recognized, chapter 5, verse 21, the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. We read that three times in chapter 4, and now we see it again. Belshazzar, you need to learn what Grandpa learned. The Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he sets over it whom he will. But over the years, Nebuchadnezzar's legacy of faith has been completely forgotten. It's been sent to the past, and Belshazzar has ignored all of the warnings that were given to his ancestors. Verse 22, Daniel says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Now, maybe you noticed as we read through what's happening in chapter five, much of the story parallels the stories that have happened before. I mean, the plot line's the same, isn't it? The king has a vision. The king is perplexed. So the king calls in everybody and their brother to help him. He calls in the wise men. He calls in the enchanters and the astrologists and the zoologists and the magicians, whoever could possibly help. He calls them all in and says, interpret the sign for me. And none of them can. And then someone remembers Daniel and says, you need to call in Daniel. Daniel can do all of this. And Daniel gets ushered in. They talk to him. And Daniel helps and tells them what they need to know. Sounds familiar, right? That's the plot line of chapter two. That's the plot line of chapter four. And it's the plot line again of chapter five. It's the same story repeated over and over again. Those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. The same is true for us, just as it was true for him. Like Belshazzar, I think we fall into many of the same traps as our predecessors in the faith did. We struggle with many of the same issues and sins and distractions as they did. And truth be told, not much has changed in the 2,500 years since Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Daniel walked the earth. Everything's the same. We still struggle with the same old sins of pride and complacency like Nebuchadnezzar did. We still struggle in how to honor God the best way as Belshazzar failed to do. Like Daniel, we find ourselves in the midst of a godless culture and daily facing the temptation to compromise our faith. The more things change, the the more they stay the same. Friends, the events recorded in your Bible were put there to tell you something, to give you information you needed. Uh, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He, he looks back at all of the terrible things that happened to the ancient Israelites as they wandered in the desert after the Exodus. And here's what he wrote, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. One of the reasons that personal Bible study is so important is that it gives you the opportunity to see all of the examples 
both good and bad, of those who've come before us. And Daniel 5, you get one of each. Belshazzar's a terrible example. Daniel's a great one. We are called by the New Testament to look to them as examples. How do we respond to them? The Bible speaks to our lives today because the Bible speaks through their lives then. And you and I can avoid corruption by remembering the past, looking to those who have gone before and learning the lessons that they learned when they learned them. Now, as you can imagine, character corruption doesn't work out well. It never does. And it didn't work out for Belshazzar. Again, we get a a whisper of Belshazzar's life. He's dead in the last verse. It's over. But before he dies, there may be no worse judgment in the Bible given by God than the one that he gives to Belshazzar. Verse 25. Daniel says, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So not only... Is your kingdom going to come to an end? The the Babylonian Empire is finished at the end of Daniel chapter five. It's over. Not only is your kingdom gonna be taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, it's gonna be divided up and parceled off. All the work that, that you and your ancestors have given to conquer all of these nations and people groups and bring them into one empire, guess what? It's all for nothing. It's all being spread out among other world leaders. But beyond all of those things, Belshazzar, your soul has been placed on the scales and God has found you wanting. What a horrific judgment. The contents of his soul were empty. The text quite literally says Belshazzar was weighed and found to be weightless. There's nothing there This is what character corruption does to you. It makes you empty. You are weightless. You have no substance. We cannot, we must not ever let this be said of God's people today. That they've been placed on the scales and there's nothing there. We wanna avoid the emptiness of this at all cost. So we do so, we learn the lesson. We remember God's holiness. We place who he is and what he's done before our very eyes, striving to allow him to move us to a place of personal holiness. We remember the past. We look to our Bibles. We look to our predecessors, to the examples that they have set, both good and bad. And we learn the lesson and we ask the Lord to make us faithful. Because if he doesn't, and we choose to go the wrong route, you will stand before the Lord, and you will be weighed, and you will be weightless. So we trust that the Lord will bring about in our lives 
the substance of faithfulness to him. Let's pray. Father, we place you before our very eyes. We look to you for who you are, for what you've done. We dare not forget. In fact, every single week at this time, we pause and and we purposely place you before ourselves. And as we remember your holiness, that this is who you are, this is what you're about, we remember the past. We look to Jesus the one who stood in our place as our substitute and gave his very life so that we could be forgiven of sin and granted the hope of eternal life so that you could transform us into the people that you've called us to be, people of substance, of faithfulness to you. So we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and we remember the body and blood of Jesus. And as we do, we are reminded once again of your holiness your holiness that executes judgment on sin and as we do so we are reminded of your overwhelming love for your people that in your holiness you execute judgment on sin but because of your overwhelming love for your people that judgment went on the cross to Jesus Christ instead of to us thank you for the mercy that you've shown as evidenced in Jesus. It's him we remember now and it's in his name that we pray, amen.